All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, we can take time to study now. We pray that you would help us to believe your word, cause the meditations of our hearts, Father God, to be pleasing in your sight and give us understanding and, and most of all, increased faith and love for you. Through your word, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin the actual text of Deuteronomy after doing all that pre-work that we did last time that you labored together with me <clears throat> on and looked at some of the ways Deuteronomy is used by theological and uh, critics uh, and lib theological liberalism and so forth, this whole Deuteronomist reviser and so forth that there's really no evidence at all for. But I want to begin, remember we said that there is a very strong resemblance between ancient covenantal ceremonies uh, suzerain vassal treaties, and the entire book of Deuteronomy, which is really important to show that the Deut book of Deuteronomy is complete and whole and unified, wasn't put together piecemeal over time, and it's ancient. All these things uh, go uh, along with this idea of the form being uh, prescribed, as it were, in this particular way that Moses wrote. And that's, that's common, that God would take a, a convention of the culture and use it to give his people a particular religious meaning. We're going to see that, Lord willing, today when we look at the sacraments. That the sacraments, including circumcision, was something that was practiced by other people. Israel didn't invent it. And God took that and he made it uh, religiously significant. The, the, the concept of covenant itself was not invented by uh, God's people. It was something that was practiced Continually, Abraham would have immediately recognized what God was doing. That's why he knew what to do, because that was a convention that God used for the understanding and the blessing of his people. It would be like if God came down today and swore an oath or something to us. Well, we swear oaths all the time. We would recognize what he was doing immediately. He would take a convention that we understand to help us to believe in him more. And so that's why I'm thinking this structure is important. But I want to notice the strong connection between the end of the book of Numbers and the beginning of Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament are in the exact same order, whether you are looking at the Jewish canon or the Greek and Christian canon. And so this is important to see that the very last verse of Numbers and the very first verse of Deuteronomy are very similar. So Numbers ends with... These are the commandments and the judgments which the, Lord your, which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So east of Jericho. We know Jericho is the first place they hit when they crossed the Jordan. And then Deuteronomy begins, very next book. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf between Paran Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. We, we almost recognize none of those towns today, locations, whatever they are, we don't really know. But the previous verse tells us they were on the plains of Moab. They're east of the Jordan River. And notice how in Deuteronomy, on this side of the Jordan, like Moses is writing that book before they cross. And of course, Christian and Jewish tradition is Moses did write the book before they crossed, at least to the very end. Well, where it just begins to describe his death, we would say that a scribe or, or prophet finished that. But uh, notice how similar they are. These are the commandments and judgments of the Lord. These are the words which Moses spoke. So a uh, very uh, similar structure that would argue again that this book was written at the same time. It was written by Moses before they crossed the river. And then you get this intro, these are the. That's very common throughout the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Moses likes to use that phrase, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so many commentators have noticed the structure of, of Genesis is, is around that repeating phrase, these are the generations. And it's a preface, these are the generations, and then it comes, uh, the generations actually come following it. And you see, these are the sons throughout uh, Genesis. Uh, these are the sons of Ham. These are the sons of Shem. Another way of structuring the book. 
And then in Exodus, these are the records of the tabernacle. And then you get all those descriptions on how God was commanding them to build the tabernacle. And then throughout Leviticus, these are the unclean to you. Uh, literally, we normally translate these are unclean to you. But these are the unclean things, you could say, to you. And a whole list comes after that. These are the appointed feasts. And we get that repeated in both 4 and 37. And then the feasts that are described. These are the statutes and the rules and the laws. And then as a postscript, the last verse of Leviticus, these are the commandments, Leviticus 27, 34. And then throughout Numbers, many times, these are the, and I'm just, you know, you, you can fill it in, but if you look at all that, I just wrote down some of them, Numbers 116, 44, 232, 33, these are those chosen, these are the ones from Judah, uh, it just, these are the, usually a list of names, right? We all remember doing the book of Numbers in our devotions and how hard it is to work through numbers because of these lists that you're constantly going through. You know, all the people from Judah and you get this same paragraph over and over again. But that these are the, again, an organizing phrase that Moses uses and it helps us. And I can tell you this when trying to work my way through the Old Testament in Hebrew, numbers is actually very helpful because when you see that repeating over and over again, it helps you to learn. And I've always wondered if that repetition wasn't at least in part a pedagogical use for Israelites teaching their children how to read. Because they'd have to read the same things over and over again. That's how you learn to read uh, as you see the same structures. But whatever the case may be, um, God is setting the stage here with this preamble, as I'm looking at it, for the recovenantal purpose of the book. That's really the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. Israel's about to enter the promised land. Moses is their leader. He's going to die. Joshua's going to take over. This is a new generation. What's the most important thing? For them to recall God's promise, God's covenant, and to recommit themselves to believe in God's promise, God's covenant, because that was the very thing that they didn't do 40 years earlier, which is why they are where they are. And so the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy really is given as a, as a, as a help to Israel to believe this time, to go in. They haven't gone in yet. They're about to go in. There's nothing left to do. And so the setting of the stage and the key to their victory is what they did, didn't do the last time. They didn't believe and they didn't walk by the word. They went by their senses and by their own judgment and they failed and then they had to be chastened. So if we look at chapter 1, verse 6, the preamble is 1 to 5. Moses saying where they are, what's going on, what, when it is. What God has recently just done, he's killed Sion, killed Og. He's already won some victories for you. We're on this side of the Jordan, the other side, the not Israel side of the Jordan. And Moses writes, and he begins to write his words. And again, the words in a form of a sermon. The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough in this mountain. And so this reminder, this beginning, this hearkening back to 40 years. Immediately we go back 40 years to Horeb, which is Sinai. Horeb is the book of Deuteronomy's favorite word for Sinai. We almost find it nowhere outside of Deuteronomy. And we only find Sinai one time in Deuteronomy. It's always Horeb, Horeb, Horeb. And so this reminder of 40 years, which was a, a, a reminder of a great failure, because that began the 40 years of wandering, but also the promise of success was given even in the midst of their failure. One place you can see that is Numbers 14.33. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years. And they shall bear the brunt of your infidelity. That generation that didn't believe and go in. So he's talking about the little children, your sons. Until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days... For each day you shall bear your own your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. How often God says we know him by experiencing him in some way. And so the interesting thing is, by God's own word, the time of chastening is over. They're on the plains, they're in the plains of Moab, they're, the Jordan's in front of them, and it's been 40 years. And so the, even, the, even the chastening, even the failure of their fathers now is an encouragement to them because God said it would last 40 years and now it's 40 years. So even that's like, 
wow, our time is over. It's, it's time to go and, and do what God promised and, and receive what God's promised. So the failure itself, you know, and God's providential goodness to his people becomes an encouragement that now you're going to go into the land and take it. And so verse 3, Moses is giving them God's word. They can believe. They can go forward. Uh, Moses is saying, according to all the Lord had given them. So Moses is saying, yes, I'm bringing God's word. Yes, I'm a prophet. And again, the reminder that he has already defeated these two powerful kings. He's already begun, as it were, to give them victory. And then uh, what's Moses going to do? He's going to make plain, make visible, it's the, from the word to see, the, the, uh, the law. Uh, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to make visible, make manifest, make plain, explain this law saying. Because the most important thing for Israel to go in and take the land is to know the word of God, to understand the word of God, to believe the word of God. Because their power is not in them. God is the one who is their savior and power. And as they believe, they will experience that. And so that's why the first thing he does now begins to preach, as it were, expound the law, the Torah, uh, which is more than just law. Torah is bigger than that. Jews don't just mean like law, precept with Torah. Torah is life instruction. Uh, it's just an all-encompassing all word that's so important to them. And the most important thing, as we said, is that Israel would know and believe God's instruction. And you see this very clearly in Joshua chapter 1. So when Deuteronomy ends and they still are about to go into the land, what does that book begin with? Well, Joshua 1, 6, Be strong and of good carriage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers. Again, God's saying that his promise is going all the way back. Only be very strong and courageous that you may what? Go in and learn combat and, you know, be strong and courageous and be ninjas. No, be strong and courageous to observe the law, to believe the word, to do what the word says. That's their strength and their courage. Don't turn from it to the right. Don't turn from it to the left that you may prosper. How are they going to prosper? Believing in the word, holding on to the word. And then Joshua 1.8, many Christians have memorized this book. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success, good success. So it's by believing, by holding on to the word, that's how they're going to take the land. And so how important for, is, it, is it for us, it seems to me, to remind ourselves constantly to recommit ourselves to believing God's word, to believe it, to want to understand it, to walk by it. That's our success. We're not commanded to go in and wipe people out. But we're commanded to take thought every captive, or take thought captive, every thought captive, um, because greater is he who is within us than he is within the world. We're called, we're called to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, and so forth, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of nations, to, as it were, um, plunder uh, the gates of hell, as, as they will not prevail against the church. And that image is an image of defense against God uh, coming in. And so we are to believe as we go forward as Christians and live our lives. So that's the preamble, verses 1 to 5. Second big section then is the historical prologue. Again, we're following that covenantal structure that we clearly see in the book of Deuteronomy that helps to give it its outline, and you just see it uh, very clear. So Moses sets the, ta the uh, uh, table and begins to explain to them uh, where they are and what's going on. Um, and he reminds them again, of their need, first of all, that God gave them a system of internal justice. They have judges now. They have rulers now. They are a people now. And this goes back again to that defining moment at Sinai, which is the defining moment of God's salvation, that he brought them to the mountain to worship him, to give them his law, which is often called the covenant itself, the, the Ten Commandments. Um, and the initial covenant ceremony where Israel covenanted and became a nation with God when God constituted them a people was in Exodus 24. And this is important to recognize that that wasn't some new thing. That was in fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. 
So going back 400 plus years, God had promised Abram's seed. He would make them a nation, a mighty nation. You couldn't number them for the stars. And so God says repeatedly throughout uh, the uh, Pentateuch between Genesis and our text in Deuteronomy over and over again, the reason why he's going to save Israel from Egypt is because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't some new thing. The Mosaic Covenant isn't some different new thing. Mosaic Covenant is just a further unfolding administration of the covenant of grace that God first announced in the garden and then made clear to Abram. So the very first thing that we read in Exodus, if we go back to Exodus, when God begins to save his people, that God hears the groaning of his people at the end of Exodus 2 because it describes, remember, how they're suffering and Pharaoh turns on them and begins to drown their boy babies and... And it says, God hears, heard the groaning of his people, and God remembered. This is what it says in Exodus 2.24. The first sort of positive thing, that God is going to do something good. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God knew. He knew his people. He was going to act now in furtherance of his covenant. And the first time God appears to Moses in the burning bush, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I am the God of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that connection of the Mosaic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant becomes explicit as God identifies himself. And what's he going to do? He's going to save his people. And what's the culmination of that salvation when he brings them to Sinai, gives them a commandment, and then enters into the covenant ceremony, which is Exodus 24. Let me read to you from Exodus 24, beginning in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, the book of the law that Moses had just written, and he read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Okay? Once in a while you'll get some guys who don't understand covenant theology, and they'll say, oh, that was bad. They shouldn't have said that. No, that was good. They should have said that. They weren't saying we're going to earn salvation by our righteousness. They're saying that we're going to embrace your covenant, which included all those sacrificial laws because you're sinners. So this wasn't that at all. All right, so all that the Lord has said we will do and we will be. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Moses wouldn't have went forward if they just rebelled in what they said. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and he said to them, verse 8, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And so the covenant ceremony happens in Exodus 24, and God uh, sprinkles the people with blood as Moses is throwing the blood of the, on, of the sacrifices on the people. They're getting the blood thrown on them, and the ceremony is now formalized. Right? That, uh, that is like walking through the parts. The blood is on you. Uh, you're giving your blood oath that you're going to keep the covenant, which includes admitting you're a sinner and using the system of sacrifices that God has given to you was never to be righteous and earn your salvation. Um, and then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Interesting that it mentions Nadab and Abihu. And 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Remember, Israel is Jacob. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in his clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Part of a covenant ceremony is a meal at the end. And so after God, after they do the sacrifices, after God gives the law, Ten Commandments, this is Exodus 24 again. You get some other commandments in there. Moses reads the whole thing. The people say, yes, we'll do this. Moses throws the blood on them, sealing it, as it were, sealing their word. And then God, to show that their fellowship is now complete, their elders who represent the whole people go up on the mountain with Moses and they eat God and somehow they see him in some theophany. They see him and God doesn't lay his hand on them because the covenant... Right, Because of the blood of the covenant and God's salvation is on them. So this mosaic administration of the covenant of grace is clearly um, in line with what God promised Abraham. This is not a return to the law. Again, some, some bad covenant theologians have sometimes said that. This is a republication of the covenant of works in, in language like that. No, not at all. All right? This is... This is in promise. God is acting because he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was not keep the law perfectly and be saved. It was believe in me. 
And righteousness will be imputed to you by faith, which is what Abram had. So Deuteronomy 1.8, notice the very first thing God said. I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Here it is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them and their descendants after them. So this Mosaic covenant and this whole recovenantal ceremony of the entire book of Deuteronomy is all predicated, it's based upon, it assumes... That you understand this is because of God's covenant with Abraham. It's not something different. It's a furthering of that. It's a fulfilling of that and a moving forward with all those promises that God said to Abram. God is making a great step forward and making many of them come to pass. They're about to get the land. That was one of the main promises. They have all these people. They're like the sand on the seashore. Another one of the main promises. So God is fulfilling his word. But his word was in a covenant of grace, not in a covenant of of law. So I just want to read to you, again, because this has happened in Reformed theology and Reformed context, and not again by solid um, uh, Reformed theologians, but um, by uh, Federal Vision theologians, for example, that the covenant of grace is going back to the law again on Moses, somehow that there's this return to a covenant of works. Listen to what the Westminster Standards say about that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 5. This covenant, now if you read the previous paragraphs, it's the covenant of grace. So I'll just say it. This covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law. Now that means Moses. But it's a covenant of grace. Notice. This time of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's the covenant of grace. Our Reformed fathers said... Under the law, under Moses, under the time of Israel, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices. We don't give those. Circumcision, that came to an end. The Paschal Lamb, that's fulfilled in the Lord's Supper. And listen, other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. That's crucial. All for signifying Christ to come. They're all about the grace of the gospel. They're pictures of Jesus. They are not laws that you have to keep to earn something. All for signifying Christ to come. The prophecies, the sacrifices, circumcision, paschal land, all the types, all the ordinances, all are pictures of Jesus. Promises of Jesus. Which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious, these pictures of Jesus... Through the operation of the Spirit, because they had the Spirit too, they couldn't have been regenerated otherwise, to instruct and build up the elect, not all Israel, but the elect who really did have the Spirit, in faith in the promised Messiah. That's the reason for them. In faith in the promised Messiah by whom, not by those works, not by those laws, not by those ceremonies, but by whom, by the Messiah, they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and this is called the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a testament of the grace of God to his people through ceremony, signs, wonders, types, laws, but not to earn anything, to show them Jesus is coming. That's what our Westminster forefathers believed. It was an administration of the covenant of grace. Again, one other place, larger catechism, question 34. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? Not how was a, a republication of the covenant of works done. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? Answer, the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament, again, by prophecies, promises, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did for signify Christ then to come, and which were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they then, at that moment, had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. So, larger catechism, um, uh, confession itself, the Mosaic covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. Now, where they, where they, the, the grain of truth is in their error where they want to say again that God is somehow redoing the covenant of works on Sinai, is that yes, the Ten Commandments is exactly the same as the perfect moral law given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes, of course. The Ten Commandments is moral perfection. And that's what Adam and Eve were required in the covenant of works. 
But when God gives the Ten Commandments on Sinai, he is not giving it in a covenant of works. That's the crucial distinction that they're missing. They think in some way that he is. Some way it's a republication of the covenant of works. The covenant of works is gone. It only condemns now. We are all condemned. We're born condemned. If God in any sense revived a covenant of works on Sinai, God is a liar. God is saying, earn something that you're already damned by. Earn, use this covenant that already damns you to get life. It's a great big fat lie. That's why it's so important to reject it. Yes, the Ten Commandments, same moral law that Adam and Eve had, but Adam and Eve had it as a way of life. God gives it to Israel because it's righteousness. It shows them their sins. This is why he also gives them the sacrifices at the same time. But it also shows them what pleases God and it spells it out for them. Adam and Eve would have known it by, in their hearts and, and by nature. But man in his heart is corrupted and man, you know, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So God in special revelation now makes it very clear that murder is against the law, that adultery is, even though people would have known that. But some of the other things, a little bit more difficult, worshiping one day in seven and so forth. So God spells out the perfect code of righteousness that was the exact same code in the Old Testament. But now it comes to a people who are forgiven by grace already. And so uh, it's a different purpose. Yes, Jonathan. Yes. I don't know what they do, but they're not reading it very closely. <laughs> because that's exactly right. You're exactly right. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the first commandment, have no other gods before me. I'm already your God. It's not do the commandments is what you're saying. And, and then I'll be your God, which again would be a covenant of works. It's not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. So the law is given to Israel in a covenant of grace. And the reason why I get so adamant about that, because that was a big deal when I was in seminary. You saw some guys being confused by that. Some people writing about that. Even some good guys sort of say, beginning to say that. Guys like Meredith Klein and even Michael Horton. But they would deny it was for salvation. Well, it was to earn the temporal promises. A covenant of works to earn the land and to earn, you know, uh, the kingship of David, and you could earn it. I don't doubt that God blessed his people as they obeyed, but their obedience was never an earning of anything because it was never worth earning anything. And so God, yes, blesses and crowns our sin-stained obedience, but we can never say it's in some kind of a covenant of works. No, ever, never. If God gives me any good from anything I do, it's grace. It's not, well, you did your part, so... Check, you get the land another 10 years. Check, you get, no. They never deserved, their, their best obedience would never deserve the land. But as they held on to God by faith and as they walked in, you know, humility, and if they wouldn't have turned to other gods, yeah, they would have stayed in the land, but not earning it. Grace, not merit. So that's the difference. But let's go to the double failure at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, the double failure, I'm calling it at Kadesh Barnea. Um, and it is a double failure, and we want to see that. Um, uh, so um, that's 19 to 46. So we get this initial, you know, um, God uh, has brought you to this point. I've given you judges and so forth because you need, you need this system of government. So part of, remember, part, part of Deuteronomy is to show Israel's constitution. Israel is a theocracy. So that's important. But it was not the first failure. We departed from Horde, verse 19. We came to Kadesh Barnea and we get the whole thing. The, stri the scri you know, I'm sorry, the scribes. The spies go in and 40 days and they tell them how awesome the land is. And remember, they have those big thing of grapes. It's like they're carrying, you know, on a rod between them because everything's so awesome in the land. But the people won't go in and the scribes get, or the spies give them a, a bad report. But this is not Israel's first great failure. It, Moses is going to jump back later in Deuteronomy to talk about the golden calf, which happened way before this. So it's interesting that he talks about this at this point. Because remember, again, they're about to enter into the land. And last time, 40 years earlier, they were here. Same thing, about to enter into the land. And they failed and they suffered for 40 years. But can you think of any other wrongs, any other failures Israel had, other than the golden calf and other than the 12 spies, just up until the golden calf, 
just from the time of Egypt. Let's make it real simple. Like we're talking about a period of a year. From the time of Egypt to the golden calf. Can you think of any other failures? Good grace. Absolutely. Not having enough food, not having enough water. Yes. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Let me go through some of them with you. The, the very first one, it's interesting. Uh, Stephen points out in his speech in Acts chapter 7, because one of Stephen's points is to recount to, to you know, the Jews of his day who were rejecting Jesus how good God has been, how patient God has been, and they are about to receive his judgment because God's patience is running out. But one of the things he says to them in Acts chapter 7, verse 24, and he's talking about Moses as a young man. And seeing Moses, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So the first thing was ignorance that Moses was the Savior. And Moses expected that they would know he was the Savior. So in some sense, Moses knew that, again, before he even goes to Midian for 40 years. And it says, you know, Stephen's first mark, they didn't understand that God would save them. And then in Exodus 5, when Moses first comes in and goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh responds badly, listen to how Israel responds, Exodus 5, 19. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. Now Moses and Aaron had already come to them, showed them the signs. They believed that God was going to save them. So they've already seen everything. They know everything. But when Moses first goes in, remember Pharaoh rejects it. You're not going to get any more straw because you have too much time. You're idle. I can see, every time I say that, I see uh, your Brenner saying that, you know, from the Charles Heston movie. You know, they have too much time on their hands. Uh, they said to them, let the Lord... Look on you. This is the people of Israel saying this to Moses and Aaron. Let the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his parents. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So God's people respond, why are you doing this? would rather be in bondage. And then at the Red Sea, remember, God marches them to the Red Sea on purpose so that he would draw Pharaoh in to destroy them. But it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see how adamant they are in disbelieving God? This isn't some, you know, struggle with faith. They are rejecting Moses, condemning him for what he's done. And they're at the Red Sea. They've already been delivered. They've already seen the ten plagues. They've seen the signs, the power of God. Um, and then as um, Grace pointed out, the, fir the first water complaint in Exodus 15. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah. They were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Then in Exodus 16, 2, the first food complaint. Then the whole children of, the, of Israel complained against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this assembly with hunger. Okay, just unbelievable. Manna, then the first time when Moses gives them manna, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but they left some of it until the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. Even when God does give them good, they don't believe. The first Sabbath, Sabbath violation in Exodus 16. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found no manna. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? He had just told them not to do it on the Sabbath. What do they do? 
They go out and do it on the Sabbath. The second water complaint, Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey in the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses. And they said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and, the, and said to him, Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and to kill our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. All right, and then we get the golden calf nine times, nine times from Sinai or from, from Egypt to the golden calf. Nine times from the time they started out, when Moses first appears, nine times they rebel and they disobey. And that doesn't even count the number of times and after Sinai, by the time they get to Kadesh Barnea, 40 years prior, and they're about to go in and they don't. They began well. Moses recounts this in verse 20. I said to you, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given you. Remember, this is 40 years earlier. Look, the Lord has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken. Do not fear nor be discouraged. So there's a sense in which they do need to obey. They, they need to believe. They need to obey and walk in God's obedience. And he will give them the land. But it's not that they've earned it. It's not in the covenant of works. All right. And it was unbelief that caused them to disobey. So it says here. They took also of the fruit of the land in their hands. They brought it down to us. They brought it back. They brought back word to us saying it is a good land that the Lord is giving to us. And they did say that. And Moses doesn't go into the fact, though, that 10 of the spies say we can't do it. The Anakim, the giants and all these horrible things. And it's way too hard. We'll never do it. We need to go back to Egypt because that is the first part of the rebellion that Moses mentions in verse 26. Nevertheless, you would not go up. 10 of the spies started your problem, but you rebelled against the command of your, the Lord your God. So it's important to notice God's promise was good. Um, God doesn't recount the discouragement given by the spies again because that was the first part of the rebellion that 26 mentions. And uh, the cause of their failure was they fe feared the world more than they trusted God. They were looking to their own abilities or they would have never done that. They were looking to God's ability. They would have never worried about how big the Anakim were. But because they were looking at their own ability, because they were trusting in themselves, because they were not trusting in the Lord, they were not able. All right? And the first part, really, of knowing that we... Know, the first part, it seems to me, of really believing God is to know that we cannot do what God requires. You're not ready to have saving faith until you know you cannot do what God requires. Now you're at the point where faith can begin. When you've come to the end of yourself, when you know you can't do what God requires. Not that we can't overcome men in the flesh, right? There are things we can do in the flesh, but that's not, anybody can do that. That's not actually doing what God said, to have that spiritual work in us when we trust God to do it. Yes, Grace. Yes, yeah. Yep. For 40 years, yeah. Which we're seeing the replay. Mm -hmm. The people who went in yeah. all died. Yeah. So the children need to be reminded mm. of all of this. Sort of like God had to prepare them for 40 years to be humble before him. Yes. To trust in him to go mm. through. So I guess the lesson for us is you know, humble ourselves. We don't, don't, we don't want the 40 years. I love that. I love what you said, Grace, that the, it was a replay. It was like the life of Moses all over again. Moses, I'm going to do it. I'm going to strike this Egyptian down. He was able to strike the Egyptian down. Sure. We can do things in the flesh. We can't do what God wants us to do. We can't overcome the spiritual things that God wants. We can't do anything when it comes to that. And this is what Israel had to learn. It wasn't just about taking over the land or defeating Israel. It was about being the people of God. You can't be that except by faith. Yes. Yes.
Sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that's a good question, Jesse, and, and it's good, good to notice. So, yes, God never loses one of his own. If God has changed, God has given a new heart, and that's the only way an Israelite could be a, a, um, um, a believer, a child of God, is if God gave him a new heart. Remember, when Jesus teaches the doctrine of the new birth in John 3, he teaches it to Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel. And the very first thing that Jesus says to him, you must be, you know, when he says you must be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God, and, and Nicodemus doesn't understand him and says, what are you talking about? How can a man go back into his mother's womb, etc.? And, and Jesus' response to him, if you remember, was, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? How can you be a teacher of Israel and not know that a man has to be born again, born from above to really be a child of God? And so this, this understanding Israel, David says, talks about giving me a new heart, so the Jews understood this. God had to do a work in them in order to be saved. All right? So that's important that we recognize. That was always true. So if God has a child who's converted, he can't fall away. So that's what you're struggling with is sometimes it looks like they're all not converted, right? Uh, and it certainly does. But we could say the same thing at times in the New Testament, right? Sometimes all the apostles are disbelieving in Jesus, right? They're, they're questioning him. None of, when, when he said he's going to rise again from the dead or, and, and die in three days, and he says that like 10 times in the Gospels, Peter rebukes him at one point, right? None of them believed. Lord, this will never happen to you, you know? And then when he says they're all going to fall away, we'll never leave you. I mean, constantly we see all of the church not believing, not walking forward. You know, Paul has to admonish the Corinthians. The whole church seems to be corrupting the Lord's Supper. Some of them are dying because of it. Um, so, the, so the big point here is, so we see, you know, rebellion, we see sin, it's ugly. Um, and we recognize that there are elect and reprobate pretty much always in the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus has Judas from the beginning. He was a devil. He was never converted and lost. He was always a fake convert. But uh, part of the issue is, and I, and I have this later in my outline, it's interesting that you brought it up now, but here's what we don't know. We don't know when is God chastening his wayward people. And I don't doubt that that does happen unto death sometimes. Right? God, I, I think when it says some of you have fallen asleep in Corinth, and meaning some of you have died, God isn't saying those are all non-elect reprobate that I've killed. I think some of them were real believers who were maybe chastened unto death. I mean, believers, I think, can do things that cause their premature deaths. Right? And that doesn't mean they lose their salvation. So are some of these falling in the wilderness God's people who sinned a great sin and now they're going to, you know, God's going to be with them till they die, but they're not going to get certain benefits that they would have gotten like getting in to see the land. I think, yeah, Moses himself doesn't get to go into the land. Clearly Moses is regenerate, right? So he's going to fall in the wilderness too. So the big, the big difficulty is, and I've wrestled with this question is, well, where do we see God bringing judgment to the reprobate? And we certainly see that. And where do we see him chastening his people? Well, both groups are going to go through the same thing. And I think at the end of the day, uh, we'll know the difference someday in heaven. But, you know, it's sort of like us. If we believe all things are going to work for our good, including pain, including heartache, including cancer. And if we don't believe, those things are going to bring us the ultimate judgment, pain, judgment, cancer, but even the good things, right? The good things that I experience as a believer, well, you know, that too is God's blessing, but the good things that the unbeliever experiences, the, 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 he's going to pay more, you know, for that, Bob. I was going to say too, you need to keep in mind, these are people who've been living in Egypt, they don't have any church structure, mm. Yeah. They, they, know, they, they, they know who they are because they're being persecuted. But they don't. There's not mm. a sense of righteousness. Yeah. And they don't have the Ten Commandments yet. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, even though they obviously they have it in their heart, they're people who are babies yeah. spiritually. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and, you know, they have to learn. They have to establish certain things. If you go in, you know, areas where the church is, you know, first being... Um, 
planted in you know places like Africa or wherever you know places where they they didn't know Christianity beforehand. You may deal with the fact that some of the members of the congregation are still eating human flesh. You know, you may deal with the fact that some of the members of the congregation are having sex with multiple partners because we always have done that. And what's wrong with that? I I still believe in you know crazy big time sin issues that we don't deal with now because we've inherited generations, and this is what Bob's talking about, of Christian culture and so forth. It doesn't make us right. A lot of times we just get more sophisticated in how to cover up our sins and hide them. Um, but, you know, they don't have that sophistication. And they, you know, so they have these crass, gross, you know, brazen-type sin problems. And, and part of that, I think, is what you're seeing in Israel. So, but let's, let's notice there's only one sin believers can't commit. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So everything else Israel is doing, complaining against Moses, you know, seeking to stone him, rebelling against God, you know, these could be believers doing this. And it's difficult to see believers looking so bad. Um, but I think if you really look at the church today, you're going to see a lot of bad stuff, right? So um, John and then Jess. Can you relate this to the first part of Romans, what we're told? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's never that they're ignorant, right? It's never that they didn't know. Like Bob said, they have the law in their hearts. They have a conscience. Everybody knows that it's wrong to, you know, turn, uh, complain against God. It's wrong to blame Moses for things that Moses isn't doing. Uh, And yet this is what we do, you know, in our sinfulness. We lash out. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And believers are able to do this. Uh, even though this is a, it is the hallmark sin of unbelievers, right? Unbelievers suppress the truth constantly in unrighteousness. We do at times as believers when we get convicted or when, when we're backsliding. But the difference for the believer is we really do love the truth. I mean, we, we really have been born of the truth, right? The truth really is in us. We never want to get to the point where we deny that a great change has been made between God's people and, and the reprobate. God's people have been born again. You have a new nature. The other person doesn't. A lot of times we can look the same because we can certainly act the same. The unbeliever can fake it, can fake a new nature, look just like a Christian. And the believer can fall into sin and look just like the unbeliever. And so it makes it really important for us not to judge by the outward. uh, And not to really rest in that because we see Christians. You know, and this is, you know, we, we have a tendency to do this, I think, in reform circles. You know, we look at other Christians who don't understand things like we do and... We'll make fun of them and look at those, you know, silly Pentecostals or whatever. And yet, you know, I have a lot of friends in those camps and I can see areas where, wow, they do a lot better than we reform people do, you know, in certain things. And even though, you know, it's easy for us to see, and and it's funny, they do the same thing in their circles. They make fun of us when we're being stupid, you know, and it's kind of sad, you know, because these aren't, we're not talking about false gospels, you know, that's a different animal. Um, but believers disagreeing on real things. But there, there's always a good group, it seems to me, in every legitimate you know, movement, whether it's Reformed or Lutheran or, or, or Pentecostal. If there's a real gospel there, you're going to have real Christian people and you're going to have hypocrites. You know? And you don't want to make them say that they're all like you know, the hypocrites. Because the Pentecostals that I know, they don't like Joel Osteen either. You know what I mean? They think he's a nut job too. And so, like, when we say, oh, look at those Pentecostals, they all follow Joe Olstein, that's ridiculous. That would be like saying, look at those Reformed people, they all follow Doug Wilson, the Federal Vision heretic. No, we don't. No, we don't. You know, so we don't want to lump people into the worst example. And, and I think we have a tendency to do that. But Jess, you were up. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are some times we can say probably because of the circumstances around it, um, this was, a, was a, a, a punishment of the reprobate. I think Noah's flood would be the classic, right? Um, all the righteous were on the ark. All the wicked were in the flood. You know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, his wife, his daughters, even though Lot was the only one righteous as far as we know, um, brought out of the city, the rest of the city destroyed. I think the rest of the city reprobate, you know. Um, the example you gave with the ground, I don't know. I'd have to study it more. That's a little bit more difficult. There's a great rebellion against Israel. Those who are on the Lord's side go over here. Those who aren't go over here. 
Could that mean that in that moment there weren't some who were deceived, who thought they were on the Lord's side, who were still standing with Dathan and Abraham? I don't know, but, um, but that's getting there. That's getting to the idea of, you know, there are times where God distinguishes, and Noah's Ark would be the big time. Dennis. Yeah, yes, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Yeah, that's a great passage to remind us of that. Like, you know, Christians and unchristians die in plane crashes. Christians and non-Christians die in, you know, when ships go down. And it really bothers me when I hear someone say, well, I'm on the plane. Everybody ought to be helping, you know, thanking me because it can't go down because I know the Lord. And I know guys who've said that kind of nonsense, you know. And think about how that condemns every believer who knows somebody who dies on a plane. Well, if you were really a Christian, that plane wouldn't have gone down. That's, that's the problem with that kind of thinking that, wow, if that happened to you, you were an unbeliever. Unless God himself says that from heaven, I don't know that. He said it at the time of Mo, or the flood. He said it at the time of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not sure I can think of off the top of my head another one. Mm. Yeah. 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 The beef paralyzed like that, and 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 the surgery did it. You know, um, I always thought that was unfair, but Bob never complained about that. Stephen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think God's always had a remnant. I think there are many Jews, there are Jews in our congregation, converted Christian Jews. That's the true Israel, those who come to Christ. Was there a hand over here? Okay, I'm, I want to wrap it up here. Um, where are we at? So uh, maybe we should stop right here. <laughs> but that's a good place to stop, and it's a good place to really think about the judgments that they went through in the wilderness, you know, um, we go through judgments in the wilderness. And if you're a Christian, you've got to believe it's for your good. God is chastening you for your good. And to me, that's the key difference. The key difference is in your heart. You know, not in, I can't figure out necessarily what's going on in somebody else's life. They may be a believer, they may not be. You know, in the church, we give one another the judgment of charity, right? Unless they commit unrepentant sin and the session has to act and they are excommunicated. And at that point, we're, we're still not saying we know they're unbelievers. We're saying they're living like an unbeliever. Therefore, they can't be part of the church. But even then, someone could be a believer and it's going to take a while for God to, you know, work in them to get them back. So we, we don't really make that judgment. But in our own hearts, you know, if I'm a believer... Even if I do fall and, and the earth swallows me up, God's going to swallow me up into heaven. That was a great chastening. And, you know, that's what brings me out of this world. And, you know, there are people who die pretty bad at the end. I think Eli is a good example. Clearly, I think, a prophet of God. You know, God speaking to him and, and, and some good things said about him. But he falls over and dies as a result of God's... And God said it would happen. You and your sons will die the same day. You know, and, I, it, and so... We can die in the midst of a, of a chastening judgment, it seems to me. And it's important to remember that. But, um, well, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, book and the example that has gone before us. Part of why you've recorded what happened to your people Israel is that we would learn and that we would learn to fear you and to, and to walk closely with you, recognizing that it's by faith that we are able to have victories, even as it was by unbelief that they failed to do so. So, Father, help us to learn the lessons that they didn't get. They didn't get to read about others. And so help us to learn, Father, and to walk more closely with you. And we pray that you'd help us now to prepare our hearts to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.